you know, I've always been a musician for God's sake. Like on one level that should have nothing to do with how I look. <laughs> and yet that sort of was an internalized part of <clears throat> my thinking process from the beginning, you know, it's not even realizing the difference between whether I'm capitalizing on my looks or whether I'm being exploited for my looks. Like, Hey, bad beaties. I can't wait for you to hear my interview with Anushka Shankar. She's probably one of the most recognized people in the world of Indian classical music. Of course, she's the daughter of the legendary Pandit Ravi Shankar. But she's so much more. A brilliant sitarist, film music composer, writer, impassioned activist, and a proud feminist. I loved chatting with Anushka. She's incredibly warm and compassionate, and so authentic with everything that she does. We talked about our shared South Asian culture, the pressure we as women feel to look a certain way. We talked about the sexual harassment that we face as we go about our daily lives, the horrific sexual violence that we are subjected to. We discussed so many important topics. I hope you enjoy listening. I really enjoyed recording this. Sharam. But the me, chi chi. I'm Sangeeta Pillai, and this is the Masala Podcast, a Spotify original where we talk about all those things that we're not supposed to talk about as South Asian women: sex, sexuality, periods, menopause, mental health, nipple hair, shame, and many more taboos. Join me around my virtual kitchen table as I talk with some incredible women from around the world, exploring what it means to be a South Asian feminist today. Before we begin, I'd like to say that this interview contains some descriptions of sexual abuse and violence that you might find triggering. Please feel free to skip anything that's disturbing. Tell us a little bit about your life, whatever you're happy to share. Uh, that's always fun, isn't it? Um, tell us your yeah. life story. You don't have to. Uh, like, it, it doesn't need to be like that. Yeah. You've obviously spoken a lot in public. Yeah. Just, you know, just the little details that make up life. You know, what was yeah. that like? What was young Anushka like? Yeah. Well, I had a, a couple of um, chapters, I suppose, that were quite different from each other um, because... My mom and my dad, you know, had a had a relationship for some years before I was born, but um, they weren't exclusively together. They weren't married, and and my mom basically made a choice that she wanted to have his child, and she, and he wasn't in a place where he wanted to do that. So there was quite a clear agreement between them that that having a child didn't mean it was leading to, you know, a marriage and yeah. living together and all of those things. And he he um, he was obviously involved in some ways, but. Overall, I was my mum's child. That was her decision. And and so I grew up in London um, with him a sort of part of my extended life, yeah. but not as a father. And and so as a result of that, I didn't have any of that experience of, you know, being, quote unquote, Ravi Shankar's daughter for the first seven years of my life. I was living in Wilsdon Green with my mum. I went to a state school up the road. Um, she was very involved in the Indian artistic community. So I was still growing up in that diaspora kind of way, but not in a way that was about being his daughter. Yeah. And so that was my kind of quote unquote normal seven years. Yeah. Um, yeah. But towards the end of that seven years, their relationship was progressing and they ended up choosing to, to go ahead and get married. And 
so that's when everything changed dramatically. Mm-hmm. And um, I was sort of transplanted to New Delhi from London and and my name changed, you know, to Shankar. And, yeah. and I remember vividly like my parents' wedding, you know, being on the front page of all the papers in India because it was this big news that he had this daughter no one knew about. And, um, and so it was a big shift into like, wow, you're yes, this person's daughter and people seem to care about that. Like, that's, that's something, you know? And, um, and there was three mad years of going to school half the time in London and half the time in Delhi. I was literally moving between wow. two schools. I guess while my parents tried to figure out whose life they lived in, so he moved into her Wilsdon yeah. house, which now I think back, that must've been quite funny. Um, and she moved into her <laughs> Delhi, into his Delhi house. And so in Delhi, I was in like a private school, a British school, and felt sort of, you know, left out because I was kind of yeah, confused by I that life. Imagine. And then in Wilsdon, I sort of started to feel left out because people were confused by this suddenly new high profile part of my life. Like when I was seven or eight, my dad played for the queen, you know. And um, yeah. <laughs> and so I met the whole royal family, but then to just go back to my normal state school the next day and they were like, yeah. you what? No, you didn't, you liar. Do you know what I mean? It was just really like <laughs> yeah, weird. Yeah, like, yeah. Those two bits didn't really go together. Yeah. And then they collectively moved to California. And so that's when I was 11. There was the kind of third third chapter of childhood, I think, where yeah. then I moved to California. And yeah. I think for me, that really helped because there was some feeling of starting anew. And yeah. and I got to sort of start again. And um, yeah, and then I yeah. was a little Californian teenager for a few years there. <laughs> wow. That's a huge shift, isn't it? Going from Wilston yeah. Green to Delhi to California. Yeah. And also the kind of... Um, being your mum's daughter only to being your dad's daughter and all everything that comes with that. That's a huge shift. Mm-hmm. Was that difficult at all? Or was, was that just kind of how you just kind of took it in your stride? Well, I think I took it in my stride. And what I mean by that is I just got on with it. Um, mm. Not that it was easy. Um, and I think I developed the emotional language for what that had all been later, yeah, you know, and there was a lot of unraveling later of, of what it had meant to go through those things. Whereas in my childhood, it was more about like, isn't this great? Isn't this lovely? Yeah. You know, and, and, and I was a real smiler and nodder about things. Yeah. So I, I was really kind of quick to just go along with stuff that seemed to be the right thing or the happy thing. And so, you know, there were aspects of me where I was like incredibly shy, like debilitatingly shy. And I think that would get exacerbated every time we moved and every time we, um, and so I'd kind of have to re reconnect into social groups and then move again and have to reconnect when I came yeah. back again. And that stuff was really hard. Um, of course. But I don't think I had the language for yeah. that then. Yeah. As children, we don't, though, do we? It's, no. it's very difficult. Where do we have that, right? No. I, well, I think there's so much more language available generally now, right? Mm. Like yes. the way we speak about emotional intelligence or process or trauma. Um, I feel like, you know, the kind of conversations I have with my my kids, or at least my older kid, um, you know, he's able to say things that I couldn't say even a couple of years ago. Like he he mm. did something wrong a a week or two ago and apologized for it a day later he was still thinking about it and I was like I'm glad you understand that was wrong but it's okay now you know you don't have to get all 
shamey about it. And yeah. he was like, I'm not ashamed. I'm feeling guilty. And wow, and that's I said, very specific. And we'd spoken isn't it? about that a couple months before, but I didn't think it had got, gone in. You know, I'd, I'd listened to a yeah, Brené yeah. Brown podcast talking about children and shame. And I tried to dip that in there, you know. And, yeah. and he very simply was like, I said, What's the difference? How do you know? And he said, Well, guilty is when you feel bad about something you did. And shame is when you say you're a bad person because you did it. And I'm, I'm just feeling guilty right now. And I thought, Okay, my nine year old can do that. You know, um, but I think there's just more of that available now. Yeah. And it just wasn't available then. I absolutely, absolutely agree. And isn't that wonderful though? It makes my heart sing. It just gives me so much joy. I, I really love those moments where it feels like, you know, it's not perfect and he's not a teenager yet. And I'm sure there's lots of stuff (laughs) to come, but, but those little moments really give me hope. Um, there is, I think, a perception in the world that when you grow up like you did with, with kind of advantages and kind of having the parents you did, that somehow life is easy. I don't, I don't know why there's a perception that celebrities have it easy, but, you know, you've had your own share of pain, like every human being, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things I wanted to talk about, if you're happy to, is something you kind of discussed with the One Billion Rising campaign, I think. Eve Ensler's um, campaign against gender-based crime. And I think you kind of went on TV and kind of a couple of newspapers and talked about something that was quite difficult and painful for you. Um, if you're happy to, and in as little or as lot detail as you, you're happy to do, please could you share that with us? So the, the context for that is that, um, as you know, in, in 2012, um, Jyoti Singh Pandey in yeah. in Delhi was was gang raped in a in a yes. I want to say particularly violent way. Yes. Even though of course it's always violent, and there was a kind of tremor shock around the world at that point, which I'm I'm sure you can remember. And it yeah, was I do. it was the first time in my life that sexual violence against a woman seemed to be felt so deeply globally. And there was a kind of collective trauma, a collective anger, a feeling of enough is enough. Um, And it felt, you know, for example, much like the Me Too movement that came a few years later or the Black Lives Matter explosion this summer, you know, it, it feels like a moment at which there's an opportunity to amplify and potentially create change. So you can create a tsunami with, as you grow the wave. And so there was that that moment that was happening after after her horrendous attack and subsequent death, and and in context of that, um, I knew that you know Eve, Eve Ensler has one billion rising, and that every Valentine's Day they do V Day, and it's a moment to yeah. really draw attention to gender based violence and sexual violence. And she'd asked if I would, uh, more generically, she'd asked if I would um, lend a video um, of support, and. And there was just something about it. I didn't actually do this on TV. I didn't do it with newspapers. I just happened to be in my room and I was going to record a video for her on my iPhone. And and for whatever reason, that that was the moment for me where I said, you know, this, you know, there, I think there was, sorry to digress, but like there was, an, there was a way in which some of the strains of conversation at the time mm. were talking about how, oh, it happened even to her. You know, oh, it could happen to someone from from that slightly more affluent part of society. It could happen. And that showed me how much people have this 
assumption that this is happening to other people, you know? Yes. That this isn't happening to my children. It isn't happening to the women in my family. This is happening over there, somewhere else, some other country. People started talking about, oh, India, yeah. or, you know, meanwhile, there were gang rapes happening in France that were in the news, but French newspapers were talking about how bad India was. There was all this othering, you know? And yeah. And I think all of that just led to a little impersonal quiet storm where I, I felt like I had kept a secret for so many years that I had been abused um, for, for many years as, as a child. And, and that was something that I had just never shared. I want to say because it never felt relevant, but that's not quite true. It just, where would I share? Why would I share? How would it come yeah. up? But then that felt like the moment. And it came from that place of like, okay, I am definitely one of those people people would see as privileged. I've got that father, I've got this career, I've got, you know, and, and I just need to say, this is everywhere. Um, this is systemic. Yeah. It happened to me. It can happen to everyone. This needs to change. And, and it was a very strange experience. I was a bit naive, I think, at the time when I made that video. I, 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 I hoped it would have an impact. I hoped it would help in some way. Yeah. But it was my first experience of kind of going viral for something like that. And, and so I wasn't quite prepared for how in the days following it started getting picked up by one news channel after another and it was getting played everywhere. It was on social media. And so it simultaneously felt like a part of my activism, a part of my offering, a part of maybe coming out as a, at the time I'd want to say as a victim and then subsequently as a survivor. Yeah. But it also was quite traumatizing yes. just because I wasn't equipped for, for what yeah. happened. Um, so it was a weird time, but uh, I'm still deeply glad I did it. Um, and it helped me look at what hadn't healed yet because yeah. of what came up for me. And I, and I got to then go and keep doing the work. But it also was part of, I think, the beginning of that movement of people starting to come out and speak. Because in India, so many women have come forward since yes. then, um, but no one really had before that. And yeah. You know, Purna Jagannath and Priyanka Bose, a few other people were involved in the play Nirbhaya, which was written in response, yeah. of yeah. course. And they shared their stories in that. So we were kind of in tandem in a way and leaning on each other in a way through the process. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think what you just said there, that there's a perception, particularly in either the Western world or even in India, that this is something that happens to other people, other women, people from you know, other households, people not like us. It doesn't happen to us. It doesn't happen in our families. But that is so untrue. Like I grew up in Mumbai. We were quite poor. So, you know, public transport to go to kind of school and college. And I was groped almost every day from the time I was about nine or 10. I didn't even know what it was. Like somebody would touch me and I'd be like, oh my God, that feels horrible. But I don't know why they're doing that. And I'd be too scared yeah. to say anything. Um, and that is the experience of so many girls, right? Let me ask you a question. Like, I, I hear you because I identify with that, that feeling of being too scared to say anything. Did you also feel intrinsically that there was something shameful that also meant you couldn't say God, anything? God, yes. I had, this is the thing. That's the bit, you know, it's that shame that somehow yeah. we absorb from the atmosphere. Yes. That the way we're taught, we're taught about that part of our bodies, the way we're... Yeah taught that that's chi-chi, we don't talk about it, we don't touch it, yeah. we don't look at it. Yeah. So then when someone else does something, it's not just that it feels wrong, but it somehow feels like we're wrong too. And that, yeah. that's why we can't go and ask. Because I, th I was like as old as 12, you know, where um, uh, separately, I, it was a similar situation where like there was a place my mom used to go and get head massages, you know, 
in mm. Delhi and I would go and get the head massage and without fail when no one else was looking the the guy would just like sneak his hands down my shirt and squeeze my breasts and it was like god I just knew it was wrong but I would yeah. just sit there I was 12 years old and I was on a red dust-covered Mumbai bus going to school as I had done every day for the past 7 years The man sitting next to me wore a blindingly white shirt, sharply pressed grey trousers, and clutched a briefcase. A respectable, office-going man, as we used to say in India in the eighties. Until that respectable man put his left hand under my grey school uniform, I froze. I had no concept of what was going on. His hand going up my skirt. felt like an alien invasion my skin crawled a thousand little bugs making their way up my thigh i was young and naive no one had told me about nice office going uncles touching my thigh but hey he looked like a nice man and he obviously had a nice job why then was his hand under my school uniform heat radiated off my legs and shame a stinking shame radiated off my whole body except i didn't know it was shame because i had never felt it before hot tears formed at the back of my eyes but i didn't let them take shape because if i did this would be real that 10 minute bus journey lasted a lifetime um i just wanted to stick with the theme that we've we've kind of just started exploring and i think i was looking at some of your um quotes of that time and you said something really beautiful and you said i mean it's beautiful but it's it's horrific as well you said it wasn't just when i was whatever years old i when i i was you know groped when i was 5 and 7 and 8 and 10 i was that mm. happened in london and las vegas and california so this is kind of a problem that exists this kind of um exposing women's bodies to kind of intrusiveness in the world as an idea mm-hmm. exists and i think it exists because you know feminism's not become what we want it to be you know where it, where we are treated and we still are in the world treated as mm. i don't know bodies in some respect that anybody can touch and anyone can say anything about mm-hmm. if we're dressed a certain way if we i don't know act in a certain way and that is the problem so obviously that the groping and the abuse is is the the kind of harsher part of that but that's the kind of belief system i think that that comes from yeah so mm-hmm. i wonder if you wanted to say anything more about kind of of that value system that still exists in the world um Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Um I think um I don't know if I can improve on what I said before, but it's it's definitely present globally and it's systemic and and it's ongoing and I think you know, I always called myself a feminist. Um uh, I ran a feminism club in high school when I was a teenager and we called it the third wave, you know, but but there was also a way in which when I learned about feminism as a child, it was like something in the past, yes. right? Like 
things weren't equal before and some suffragettes came along and they fought for our equality and we got the vote and happy ending. Like, yeah, things, yeah. things are it's better finished. now. Job's done. Yeah. But like, but now I, I look back and think I grew up in the 80s, right? And you and the 90s and you think of the commercials that were around. Yeah. The kind of, the the fact that the equal pay act still hadn't been yeah. passed and still has isn't passed and just kind of like, the, the idea that what I was sold by society was that it was okay now, just because it wasn't as bad as it was before. But then I had to yeah. experience through my own personal lived, yeah. you know, life as a woman, how yeah. ongoing it still was and is. You know, we're definitely going through another wave right now um, yeah. where things are yeah. pushing and things are changing, um, but it's so far from okay. And, and it's the stuff you're talking about where it's not just the dramatic stuff on top. Like it starts with the really small way in the middle uh, and at the beginning where like girls and boys, men and women are not the same and not equal and everything kind of exists from the default male perspective as a start. And yeah, like it needs such big... Oh, I'm losing my my sentence. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's, again, something you said, uh, and I loved that. And you said, it's about living in fear. It's about being afraid to walk at night. It's about Mm. being afraid to answer a man who asks me a question. It's about Mm. thinking about the makeup that I'm wearing, thinking about the clothing that I choose to wear. Why should it have to be Mm. this way? And it absolutely resonated with me. And that stuff just gets so internalized, doesn't it? I mean, I still... Yes, this is it. I still, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm... I'm in my late 30s and I still have that process in my head every time I choose to walk home at night, you know, and it's like, I want to walk. I want the experience of walking freely at night. And yet there's constantly this little latent part of my brain that's going, could this be the night? Could this be the night? Like, what do I do? And that's not normal and that's not okay. You know, I've always been a musician for God's sake. Yeah. Like on one level, that should have nothing to do with how I look. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. um, and yet that sort of was an internalized part of yeah. <clears throat> my thinking process yeah. from the beginning. You know, it's not even realizing the difference between whether I'm capitalizing on my looks or whether I'm being exploited for my looks. Yes. Like not even knowing the difference as a young teenager, a young woman, but just knowing that like I need to maximize. Yeah that side of myself and that to not do that is somehow challenging or combative almost. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, That I'm going against the grain somehow. Yeah. This is what society expects me to look like and talk like and sound like. And if I choose not. It's been really interesting. Like I did, I did a whole tour last year just in my dad's old kurtas and and like I saved like an hour a day, I think, (laughs) just not doing the whole faff of, of, getting yeah. dressed and doing stuff on stage. And like it was kind of like, I just need to learn for myself how to let go of that, yeah. you know? And like now start to maybe trust my audience. Like I'm not a pop star. I'm not 20. You know, it, it's sort of like if they're coming, they're not coming to stare at me. But but that stuff is so internalized in myself that now this I think, it. you yeah. know, that if, but if I'm yeah. not pleasant to stare at, that's going to be at the detriment of my yeah. musical career. Yeah. You know? And it's like, okay, can I just test that? Can I just you know, walk out on stage just how I look like in a normal day and just do my music and just... And it, it's really interesting that that still feels a little scary. Yeah, it does. And it's not just you, Anushka. It's every single one of us. 
I'm a podcaster, so nobody needs to see my face. But if I'm on a, in a picture, like I'm so conscious of how I look and I'd be like, oh my God, and I'm 48. So, you know, I'm guess starting to get lines and, and I kind of find myself looking in the mirror and thinking, oh my God, I've got more lines. And I'm like, but I'm 48. That's what's supposed to happen. That's what's supposed yeah. to happen, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this is just stuff we carry. And if we are kind of told this from the time we're, I don't know, five years old, that as women, our first and kind of ultimate purpose is to look a certain way. And then comes what mm-hmm. you do and who you are and what are your kind of, who are you inside? But, you mm. know, it, that's such a small message compared to the big external message. But what do you look like? You know, and that's mm-hmm. just so sad. And here you are, you're kind of one of the world's most kind of famous musicians. And you're still thinking, you know, can I wear a kurta? And, you know, and that's, yes. <laughs> you know, that says so yeah. much. Can I go on stage with no makeup? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So being an Indian woman, having lived in all of these places, being a feminist as you clearly are, and kind of sometimes the culture isn't feminist, our culture, you know, there are bits of it that are beautiful and there are bits of it that aren't. How has that relationship within, with, with Asian culture changed for you as you're growing up or you've started to question some of these things? What are the things you've come across? Um, it's been difficult. Um, I think especially in the last decade, but really, really understanding the rampant misogyny and normalized violence and inequality has definitely tarnished my, my love and relationship with my culture. You know, it's, it's, it's hard. You can't, you can't mute one to, to have the other. I mean, it's the same as any kind of interpersonal relationship, right? If someone's a total dick. Like in five areas, but really nice in three areas. It's like, negates mm. <laughs> <laughs> the, the other. So, so it's been dri- difficult because I mean, as, as, as you know, but like my, my music, like everything I do, like what it comes from is, is from my culture yeah. as well. So I, I've grown up like deeply connected to our heritage and, and it's a big part of my life, but at the same time, I'm deeply uncomfortable with it as well and that's yeah. painful it's painful and it's difficult and i won't i won't pretend that that's something i've resolved yeah. you know i think it's something i haven't really talked about much but yeah. but it feels uncomfortable it feels uncomfortable to not like so much of my own culture and to know that whenever i say something like that i will be completely vilified by a whole yeah. bunch of people that are so one dimensional about one their dimensional, view of culture. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the name of being patriotic, yeah. you're, you're supposedly not supposed to dissent about yeah, anything, yeah. which obviously is connected to so much else as well. But, but yeah, how do you how do you grow if you can't look at what's wrong? Absolutely. And how mm. can you genuinely have a relationship with your culture if you're not allowed to question any aspect of it? That's mm-hmm. not healthy with anything, is it? And it's weird as as someone that's part of this kind of diaspora where it's like, if I say anything about India, well, you don't live here, you know, you don't have the right to say it. And then I'll say anything here and it's like, well, go back to where you came from. And, you know, it's like, come on, okay. (laughs) (laughs) You can't win either way. No, no, no. I completely get this. There are many things I love about our culture like Bollywood films. As a young girl, Amitabh Bachchan was my hero. Tall, angry, raging at the world. Sitting in those dark cinema halls, 
the air conditioning humming gently in the background to keep out the sultry Mumbai heat. But there were other kinds of films, films with strong messages for women. My parents took me to watch Ek Tujhe Ke Liye, each for the other. The heroine and hero of the film fall in love over scenic bike rides and waterfalls. But then the heroine is sexually abused by the villain. And what does she do? She stands poised over a dangerous cliff called Suicide Point. I still remember how I felt watching this, sitting at the edge of that worn cinema seat. Don't do it, I thought to myself. Of course she did. The heroine jumped to her death, killing herself to protect her so-called honor. I got the message loud and clear. We were being told that our honor was more important than our lives as women. What kind of message was that? Are there any specific aspects of the culture that particularly great with you that you want to talk about or shed light on? I mean, where do we begin? Pick, Jesus. pick anything. Um, I think where we are is 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 definitely important. I mean, I I just don't think that it's a great place for women. Yeah, you know, and yeah. and I I feel you know I feel scared to walk down the street anywhere at night. But yeah, yeah. Particularly when I go back, it's yeah, it's, it's worse. It feels scarier, you know, and and I know that it's it's just uncomfortable, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, um, it is. It is very, and I get exactly what you mean. So I've lived in the UK for sixteen years. Where every time I go back to India, my body is different on the streets in India to how it is here. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of more guarded. I'm more protected. I'm my eyes are everywhere. You know, I am in kind of defense mode. Um, and mm-hmm. I took it kind of living in India. I thought that's just how it was. That's just how the world is, right? So like, like we're saying, it is, a, it is a global issue. And I've definitely experienced, you know, assault or yeah. Um, molestation yeah. Yeah. kind yeah. of everywhere. But, but India, it was just more prevalent. And, yeah. and yeah. young as well, like you talked about. The and kind young. of like just, just pinching and the, the like. Yeah. Just trying to go about yeah. your day and... Yeah. What we do, what I think some of the work you do, you've been kind of quite vocal, challenging some of the things that exist. I mean, and you don't need to, you know, you're, 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 you're kind of, you know, music is your thing and you're kind of very powerful in the work that you do. But I, I, I feel really good when I hear you talking and raising things, I think, mm. um, and you're using your privilege and, and the position you are in, I think, to kind of raise awareness about these things. And I think it was Eve Ensler that said something like, when you turn your power, uh, when you turn your pain into power, if you can convert your pain into power, that's kind of where, I suppose, true growth yeah. and, and kind of the future Absolutely. lies, right? Because otherwise you're just mm-hmm. stuck in it. Um, again, feel free to say anything about that if you wish. But yeah, you know, I mean, I to. think you know, I, I definitely think there are other people who who do more, and um, I think people like me who are you know artists and do some as part of our 
life and yeah. career are, you know, nowhere near as impressive as the people who are like on the front lines doing this as their full-time yeah. work. Um, you know, my my full yeah. admiration goes to goes to those people first. But um, but I think as you say, and as Eve Ensler said, like when we can take what we've experienced and use that to be part of creating change and helping others, <clears throat> that's where healing occurs, right? Like for for oneself um, and for another at the same time. And, yeah. and I think that's where any desire to do anything comes from. You know, it, it, it's not about yeah. me anymore if I'm speaking. Yeah. It's about Absolutely. the idea that maybe that helps someone else. And then weirdly, yeah. it'll help me too. Like that's the, that's yeah. the mystery yeah. of it, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think it was in the same interview that you said, um, this is for the child in me who will never recover from what happened, I think. And again, it really connected with me because the work I do is very much mm. for the child that experienced all the things that I experienced. So I grew up with a lot of violence in my home. My dad was abusive, alcoholic, so I didn't really have a childhood. So I think somehow along the journey came all the pain and the way I processed the pain was to right. do this work. And if I couldn't help little Sangeeta, I can help somebody else now. Yeah. And that's a huge part of my personal healing. And it's a, it's a journey. I mean, there's, yeah. it's, I'm nowhere near where I would like to be. But I think there's a huge amount of power in taking yeah, that. Yeah, and it's, it's, I mean, it's as you say, like there's, 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 there's your little Sangeeta, but like she's still there, right? Like, like we're still yes. that, we're still that person. Yeah, we are still that, still that, child, that and, person. And so... When I, yeah. when I do this work, when I do this stuff, like I, I do connect to that little part of me as well. And it is healing. Yeah. And I think that's what I meant earlier. Like when I first did that, that video and it went viral, I think it initially was just a little bit re-traumatizing for my child because I wasn't prepared for like yeah. just globally. Yeah. She was abused. She was abused. She was abused. She was abused. And like this kind of, whoa, like yeah. something yeah. I kept, yeah. I kept yeah. protected yeah. and private felt raw, yeah. you know, yeah. and suddenly it was just out there. Um, but then I saw that and could then do the work I, I needed. And, and so now it's come with healing, you know, and, and it really does create change. Yeah. Um, it's very powerful. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about? So, yeah, the most recent thing that I released is pretty different from anything I'd done before. Um, it's, it's the first time I've released an EP as opposed to an album. And, uh, and I did that because the music is, is really personal and, um, and I didn't necessarily want to have to go and do the big circuit and the big tours and still wanted to release the music and connect with people. Um, so the, the EP is called Love Letters and, and it's a collection of six songs, all featuring female artists and guest collaborators. Yeah. And I, on a personal level, I wanted to put my money where my mouth was a bit more and not just have that be on the yeah. front end, but I worked with more female engineers, more mastering yeah. engineers, like just really more women than yeah. I ever worked with. And that that was lovely, you know, to think in that way and and seek out women to work with. Yeah. Um, but on the artistic side, that was coming more from where I was at in my life. You know, I, I had a separation two years ago. I had a divorce last year. And so naturally a lot of the music was coming from that yeah. place. And I just found myself naturally gravitating towards the energy of working with female co-writers and yeah. female, because yeah. I was doing that in my life as well. I was leaning on my girlfriends, you know, and so that yeah. translated into the music. And so it's a collection of six songs that deal with various aspects of breakup and heartbreak and, and some of it quite particularly to do with the experience of women, you know, um, and there's a, there's a song called Wallet, for example, that very much talks about 
more generically what it's like to be left with the children, you know, and, and yeah. what that's yeah. like for women, which which we don't really hear yeah. about in music so often. But some of the women I were work I was working with had similar experiences. So all of that just kind of yeah. is is in the EP, and I I really I really love it because I I haven't released exclusively songs before. If anything, yeah. songs with vocals are peppered in my albums, which are instrumental. And it felt really nice to just work with word. And I love writing, as 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 you mentioned earlier. Yeah. So to to really delve into that and write lyrics and write songs and produce again yeah. myself, it felt really good. And it sounds like a really personal piece of work as well. Mm-hmm. It it, right? it is. I think I've I've grown. It's taken each album and each year to grow more comfortable. There is a trust of the process and a trust of the listener that I have now. Yeah that I don't yeah. think I had before, that that I know you put your guts in it and then it's okay. Um, yeah, and trust that it's going to yeah, be okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's really lovely to have that, yeah. No, that's wonderful. Um, and is there anything else coming out this year in as much as we can manage with whatever's going on any other projects that you're involved in shows that you're Um, doing I got to do a bit of work during lockdown which was which was great um yeah I co-wrote the score for a suitable boy um and and I had a couple of guest collaborations come out I was on his holiness the Dalai Lama's first album I saw that on your website (laughs) which is incredible crazy I I guessed it on one of one of the pieces his spoken word on meditations uh and then I also got to work with Patty Smith who's one of my sort of wow. female artist heroes um, on a song yeah. for the Soundwalk Collective, which is out. Um, and then later in the year, uh, you know, Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls, that collection yeah. of books. Yes. So they're doing an album of music. So Goodnight Songs oh, for fantastic. Rebel Girls. And I did a cover yeah. of a Bjork song called Yoga, which is one of my favorites. And so yeah. it's one of the one of the only times I've yeah. sang on a, on a yeah. record. Yeah. So that felt yeah. really good too. Wow, that's amazing. But I think like like so many of us are feeling this way, but like I didn't grow up seeing brown women doing stuff yeah. like this. I, I saw lots of incredible brown women. Let me correct myself. I saw lots of incredible brown women as part of my classical cultural heritage. You yeah. know, so so yeah. the, the yeah. dancers, the singers, the artists, I definitely did grow up with a lot of amazing brown women. Yeah. But not in popular culture, not talking about yeah. this stuff, not, you know, yes. and I think this last yeah. few years, something's shifting. And that feels so important. And I, yeah, I just want to be a part of it too and support it. And oh my yeah, God. it's cool. <laughs> That's pretty much it for me. Um, if there's anything you want to talk about or ask me or just say, please feel free. <laughs> that sounds good. No, that's great. It's been a pleasure. I kind of, I listened to a few of your podcasts and I was really, I just really wanted to to be a part of it. Oh my God. Thank you so much. I'm so thrilled. I mean, absolutely. Uh, You're just incredible. And I love your energy and I love what you do. I love what you put out in the world, musically and otherwise. So it's just such an honor. Thank you. To have you on Masala Podcast. Um, Anushka Shankar, it's been a pleasure and a joy and an absolute privilege to speak to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you've been affected by anything we've talked about in this episode, please head to the show notes where I've listed some information about organizations which can offer help and support. I'm Sangeeta Belai. Thank you for listening to the Masala Podcast, a Spotify original.
Masala Podcast is part of my platform, Soul Sutras. What's that all about? Soul Sutras is a network for South Asian women, a safe space to tell our stories, a place to reclaim our bodies, to tackle taboos within our culture, to be exactly who we want to be. Get in touch and tell me your stories about your taboos. Check out my website, soulsutras.co.uk or get in touch via email at soulsutras.co.uk. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Just look for Soul Sutras. Masala Podcast was created and produced by me, Sangeeta Pillai, edited by Orbis for Studio, opening music by Sunny Robertson. Besharam, Batamiz, Gandhi, Hi, hi, bad baby.